Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Let's read it together. It says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let us pray. Lord, as we open up your word, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are not left without a witness, but you've given us a living book to testify of your good works and the things that you want us to enter in this evening. And so we pray, Lord, that as we sit here today, Lord, we don't, maybe there's um, a whole number of reasons why people have come this evening, but whatever reason we're here, we just pray that you'd surprise us, meet us, and speak to our hearts in a way that refreshes us, that we leave here, change people. In Jesus' name, amen. If you think about what it means, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be you? I think the more that you examine the identity, the more that you realize identity itself is fluid. In other words, it's changing. Human beings are always becoming something. Whereas if you have a giraffe, a giraffe doesn't contemplate, you know, what does it mean to be a giraffe? A gorilla doesn't contemplate what does it mean to be a gorilla. It just is a gorilla. It just is a giraffe. But what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be you? That's an entirely different question. And it's very difficult for us to answer because you and I both know that we're constantly trying to figure out who we are. Isn't that interesting? That's something that only human beings do. At least what we know from our experience here on planet Earth. Is that you and I are constantly trying to figure out our emotions. You think things like, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. I'm trying to figure out who I want to be. I'm trying to figure out who I want to be in a relationship with. You're constantly trying to sort out these emotions that you have inside of your heart, which constantly might be conflicting. And you're always trying to equate that to who you are as a person, who you are as a human being. And so it's very interesting when people are very confident about who they are in their identity. And they'll be very adamant about who they are or who they're going to be. And they try to have this kind of self-freedom or they try to state themselves in sentences and, and be like, well, this is just who I am. And you have to accept me for who I am. But if you're not even really sure of who you are, how can we be confident in who you are either? And so when it comes to this topic of identity, I think what we realize is the more that you poke at it, the more that you become um, less certain that you know who you are. Especially as you get older, you start having these conflicting emotions all the time. But as what we're going to see tonight, we find out how to find out who we are. We discover who we are and who we're made to be. And that's because God himself is our creator and he's made us for a purpose. And so in seeking him, we find out why we're here on this earth, why we have these emotions, why we have these feelings, these tendencies, and we're able to interpret what we're supposed to do next. And the whole first half of Colossians, what we've examined thus far, has been something called indicatives. 
In other words, what it's been saying is Paul has been writing to the church at Colossae telling them who they are so that they can know what they are to do. So from the indicatives, now he's going to what are called imperatives. So he's been saying this is constantly who you are and been giving them that identity. Whereas the rest of the world is constantly trying to sort out their feelings, their emotions, their desires, their ambitions. The people in the church can know that this is who you've, made, you've been made to be and this is who God wants you to be. And because of that, this is what we are to do. And so he actually uses this phrase. He says that you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. A very interesting sentence, right? That you and the, everything that you know up until this point, until you became a Christian, has died. It's gone. At least what you thought you knew. And then your life itself is hidden with Christ and God. We're going to get to that in a second. But that sets us up for what we're about to examine in the first verse, which is, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. So what we've been learning is there's constantly, there's things that he's been saying about us that, that tell us that you are loved, you have access to God, you have access to Jesus Christ and his fullness, that reality is available to you today. You don't have to sit around and meditate and do what these other philosophers, these false teachers are saying. But you have access to God. And now it's time to act into that new reality, that new status. It's kind of like when you get your license for the first time and you're, you know, 16, you turn 17, you take your driver's test, and then they give you a card, right? And there's really nothing that's happened to you physically, mentally, emotionally, really, that's changed except your status between you and the you know, United States government, the Department of Motor Vehicles, saying that you are now qualified to drive. And because you have this license, now you can partake in all these different kinds of freedoms. Now you can drive a vehicle, you can drive to 7-Eleven just because, you can pick up your friends just because, and you're like, your friends are like, why are you at my house? I'm like, because I got a license. What else do you do with a license? And it's an exciting opportunity to be able to take advantage of a new relationship you have to the state and to this vehicle that you now own or you might be borrowing from your parents. And for us as believers, we have a license. We've been given that new status, that citizenship which is in heaven, and we are to take advantage of it. And so regarding this new identity, the first thing is that we have to realize that we are alive. We've been made alive in Christ, and that's what he says in the first thing. So our being raised with Christ is a past event and a present reality. That we have been raised from the dead with Christ as he has been raised from the dead is a present reality and also has happened in the past when he resurrected from the dead after he died on the cross. And you're like, what does that mean? I don't, I don't really know what that means. That means that just as you and your sins and your life was tied to him in his death on the cross and your sins are forgiven, you're also sharing in this new life. Remember when Jesus resurrected, he was the firstborn of all creation, we learned in Colossians chapter 1. Which means that he was the first fruits of the re resurrected body, the, the first kind of new human where, that we'll be able to be when we're restored, when Jesus comes back for his church. And we're also going to be able to live this life and not have to have the fear of death, the fear of sin, anything like that. And we can share that life, not just in the future, although there is a part, portion of that which will be only fully realized when Jesus comes back. There is a portion of it that we can share in today. This is what First Peter says in chapter 1 where it says, 
In verse 3, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So Jesus has removed every obstacle that would prevent us from entering into this new reality. In other words, the, the full and abundant life. He did everything. And so here's the question that I would say by way of application for us. If Jesus has raised us to new life, and you place your trust in Jesus, you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, should not something be different now? Now consider your life before Jesus, and consider your life after Jesus. Shouldn't something be different? And if you look at your life, and you're kind of wondering, well, I'm not really sure what I can point at to say, like, this has changed about me since Jesus has saved me from my sin. Shouldn't you see an indication of that? Just like it uses the analogy of being alive and being dead. Clearly, there is a difference between a person who is alive and a person that is dead. Although, there are many people that are alive that are playing dead. And so as a believer, perhaps you've been raised to this life, but you're not acting upon it. So I have to ask the question, how would your life be different if you weren't saved by Jesus? Would it be a life full of despair? Are you, do you have a relationship with Jesus right now in such a way that you are depending on him for everything? So that if this was all a lie, if this was not true, you would be trapped in despair. Are you living your life in such a way that you've made Jesus your everything? You have made it your life. This really is your identity. So that if you were to lose it, you would lose everything. Or is it kind of just like, uh, I guess if Christianity wasn't true, if I didn't believe in Jesus, I guess I would just sin more. I'd probably like smoke cigarettes, go out drinking with my friends. Would that be the evidence of your changed life is that you just don't do certain things? Because that's what we learned last week is not to be a mark of a believer. It's not supposed to be about the things you don't do. It's about the things that you are supposed to do. As a believer in Jesus, we are to have hope that is really hope. Not like the world's hope that's in wishful thinking, but a hope that is alive because we place it in a historical event that Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago and he is raised again. And that gives us a precious promise that we can enter in today as we await his return tomorrow. So would you be in a state of despair, of hopelessness without Jesus? Are you living your life in that kind of a way? Or is it just kind of like, well, if it wasn't true, I guess I would just do more bad things. And so he's kind of rehabilitating your behavior, but he hasn't changed your heart. He hasn't changed the desires, your ambitions, the things that you dream about, the things that you hope for. Are you living your life? And, it, and listen, there's part of us that doesn't want to do that because we're afraid of becoming this weird kind of Jesus freak, afraid of being like me. Not like I'm a Jesus freak, like I'm sold out for Jesus, but you're just afraid like, being sold out for Jesus means being a pastor or being a worship leader. That's your two categories, right? Or for ladies, being a, a pastor's wife or something. And so because you're not really clear on what the identity is, you're afraid of embracing it. And so you sell yourself out for lesser identities that aren't really you. That's what tonight is all about. 
I want to demolish your idea of heaven. I want to demolish your idea of identity in Christ and be able to give you that new identity that God desires for you to have. So as you leave this place, you are more sure of yourself than you ever were before. And you're more sure of your calling than you ever were before and probably more than your friends that aren't in this room right now. If you think about Lazarus, Jesus' friend who died and for four days was in a tomb, and then Jesus went to go visit him, and he resurrected him from the dead, right? That's what he did, even though it was in a temporal body, it was the same physical body as ours, he had to die again. But he walked over to the tomb, he told people, roll away the, the stone, and they said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus came out, and then he told his friends to take off uh, the, the different grave clothes that he was wearing so he could walk free. And Lazarus had every opportunity to embrace this new life once again. And so he did. He walked among his friends again. He was able to eat and drink again. He didn't stay in the tomb. But there are many believers, I would say, are not willing to embrace that new life because they're afraid. And so they've held on to the grave clothes like Lazarus They've stayed in the tomb, stayed in this old way of thinking, stayed attached to the old man that should have died when Jesus died on the cross. So examples of this might be like this. Maybe you still are holding on to a fear of man. And when you, when you walk around at church, you know, maybe you've done things that aren't, you know, you're not proud of, but you're still holding on to that. And you're afraid of what people think. And when they see you at church, you're afraid of people's evaluation of you. That people will look at you differently or just be like, oh, well, I know who he really is. And so you're always keeping that in the back of your mind. It's keeping you from embracing the calling that God has for you because you're afraid of people accusing you of sin. Or maybe people are constantly giving into lust, even as a Christian. And because they're continually falling into the same patterns of sin, they're not able to embrace that new life. Or maybe it's even just lying. You have a bad habit of always lying to everybody for whatever reason. You're not even sure it's like... I mean, how many of us, like, you go out shopping, and then you bought something on sale. It was, like, a great sale. It was, like, originally $20. You got it for $10. Your friends say, like, dude, like, where'd you get that from? I'm like, hey, I only got it for $5. You didn't have to lie about that. Why do we do that? Anyone else say that? It's just me? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Where you just kind of, like, you exaggerate for absolutely no reason. But in more serious terms, many of us will lie not because... We want to lie and be, be a liar. In fact, we wouldn't even consider ourselves to be liars, but we constantly are afraid of people finding out the truth. Well, the tomb of this, the trap of this, of this old life is you have different tragedies. You have the tragedy of being a liar. The tragedy of liars is that you can't trust anyone because you're afraid that they're going to be just like you. You have the tragedy of lust that you're never satisfied because it's always about what you don't have. And it's a constant cycle of always looking for something else, something better than what you currently have. And you're constantly stuck in the fear of man, avoiding anyone who has seen the worst in you for fear of being exposed by them. But in Jesus, when you've agreed to leave that tomb behind and walk in this newness of life, you have, as 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. So another good question would be this. If we have been raised with Christ, what's holding us down? Is it ourselves? Because Jesus has defeated every enemy and reduced every barrier. So why do we stay down? 
Why are we holding on to that old life? Well, for the Colossian church, this is the reason. They didn't realize that they had been raised. It was just a matter of they didn't realize of what they had. And I think for us, there is a kind of boldness that comes about when there's more than one person with us, right? Like when you, I mean, you see this all the time. Teenagers in the mall, always happens. You might do it. If you do it, cool. I did it when I was a teenager. You'll never have a teenager by himself do something crazy, like scream in the mall, just yell at people, like tap people on the shoulder and run away. They always do it with somebody else, right? And the more there is, the more emboldened they are. There's like six guys that are like freshman guys and they're just like yelling at people for no reason, running around like crazy. And they feel like emboldened because they have other friends to do it. No offense if you're a freshman guy. It's just, it's just what happens. Even when you're a child, if you think about it, you're not willing to go into the dark unless you have an adult, unless you have your dad to walk with you into the dark. Even when you're Alan Khan, you're 28 and you're in that main building and it's dark outside and you're like the only one locking up and you're trying to set the alarm and you're afraid like maybe there's a burglar hiding there and he's going to kill me and no one will know. So you FaceTime your best friend so that they have evidence that you died. Just, I've only done that twice. The point though is many of us will do things we probably wouldn't do normally if someone else did it with us. And the key is you are never alone because you always have Jesus with you. And that's the importance of this, this passage right here is that you are raised not by yourself. You're raised with Christ. He's always with you. This life that you have is a shared life with Jesus himself. And anything that you have, you can con continually rely on his power to go before you. They don't have to go into the dark alone because you have the light of Christ going before you. Whatever trial, whatever shame, whatever people think about you, you can remind yourself of what Jesus thinks about you first as you go into the midst of a difficult situation. As you walk into drama, as you walk into your school, as you walk into gossip or whatever, you know that there's someone who loves you unconditionally. And because you have that as a barrier, you can walk into whatever situation that's in front of you. So he gives us a number of ways to do this, to identify with the life of Christ. And he says the first thing is, it's still in verse 1, it says, Seek those things which are above, where, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. So he says to submit your heart to Christ. Now, when he says seek those things which are above, what does that mean? How do you do that practically? Because now when we think about it, when it says like, you know, seek those things that are above, not on the earth for you, die, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And it says that later on. It says, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, where is Jesus? How are you supposed to, like, take your heart and just be, like, put it up there? You know, like, um, that one song that we sing, you know, wandering heart, Lord, buy my heart like a fetter, you know, whatever. You're like, oh, wait, I'm trying to remember the song. Here's my heart, take it and seal it. Seal it for, for, the, for thy courts above, right? So you... You take your heart and you're putting it somewhere. No one knows where you're putting it, but you're just kind of like, here you go. You're just chucking it. Um, so what do you actually do? How do you actually seek with your heart? How do you actually put that in heaven? Does it mean you have to get in a spaceship? You have to like go looking for Jesus and look for his throne up there in the sky? Because Jesus ascended, right? He ascended into heaven. The disciples watched him go up and like, okay, that's cool. 
And so, like, when you're supposed to seek things above, are you supposed to, like, go up there, find him? Or, obviously, none of you believe that, right? But now when you think about, like, things of heaven, what does that mean? Because no one really knows what that looks like. Then how do you put your heart there? It's just a really confusing thing when you think about the fact that you're not really sure what you're supposed to visualize when you visualize heaven. Not really sure what you're supposed to pursue when you pursue heaven. It's just a very big question. Well, this passage is alluding to Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. This is a prophecy about Jesus. So what this is talking about is this is the place of authority. It's not so much a spatial location we're supposed to be worried about. Hear what Peter T. O'Brien commentator says. He says, The apostle alludes to the psalm in order to describe the realm above in terms of the exalted Christ. The heavenly realm centers around the one with whom they have been raised. So get this. Get this. This is really interesting. What you're not supposed to do is think about heaven like in this like spatial cloud kind of vortex where you're kind of like in this time warp and there's no time and no space and you're just kind of there. That's not what you're supposed to do. Instead, when it's talking about heaven, it's not so much a concern about where is heaven, like in the space-time universe or a different dimension. It's more so about heaven is defined by where Christ is. So wherever Christ is, that defines heaven. And where Christ is, because he's on the throne now, because he's ascended into heaven, he's been able to win that authority And he's been able to conquer his enemies. So, in a sense, this is what you see throughout scripture. When you have in Ezekiel, you have the the vision of the four creatures. It says this in Ezekiel chapter 1. It says, uh, from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around Like the appearance of the rainbow in the cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Really hard thing to visualize as he's going through this entire vision of God. But that's kind of the sense is where God is is so indescribable. But the fact of the matter is that he is able to conquer whatever's around him. It's the place of his authority. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So, I'm going to say something that's controversial. I said a whole bunch of confusing things, but what I'm about to say is controversial. And here's a really cool application. You have heard it said, I'm going to pull a Jesus. You have heard it said, uh, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Right? And people use it as a passage to talk about Like, Jesus is there, so let's pray together. You just need two or three people, then you're good. Like, Jesus will be amongst you, right? And then people critique that and say, no, that's a passage about church discipline. What Jesus is saying there is not necessarily will be there because he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. So that passage is talking about Jesus is going to be present to discipline people when there's people deciding on who to discipline in church. Now I'm going to negate that and say this. When Jesus is saying, wherever two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of them, it's not just about church discipline. It's talking about when there are two in agreement with each other, two Christians, two believers together, 
and you are praying for God's will to be done, it welcomes, not just because God's omnipresent, we know that, he know, we know he's everywhere, it's welcoming his authority where you are. Which, yes, justifies church discipline, but it also welcomes his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're not just by yourself, you're not just alone. You're not, this is why Jesus sent people two by two, not just alone, into the world to make disciples. So you as a believer, as you gather with other believers, there is power in numbers, not just you by yourself. And as we gather here tonight, there's the importance of us gathering together because we are welcoming the presence of God to come upon this place in authority and speak to some hearts. As you bring a friend into youth group, it's not just, oh, well, we could have done this somewhere else. I could have sent them a link to a video. Yeah, you could have done that. But bringing somebody here in this place where they don't know Jesus and you have, a other, you have other believers praying together, what you're doing is you're welcoming the authority and the presence of Jesus to meet us in this place and speak to that one person's heart. So I would venture to say what we as believers should be doing more often is welcoming heaven into the spaces that we are in. And I don't say that to be poetic. I'm saying that to be true. Welcoming Jesus and his authority and his favor and his blessing into the places where we are by making room in our lives. And this is what he'll be talking about in the latter passage that we'll go over next week. There are things that we're to put off because it doesn't be, it's not resembling us anymore. It's part of the old nature. There are things that we're to put on. And by putting on that new nature, we're welcoming God to come down and to be able to take his place on the throne in our heart and in our lives. So in essence, knowing what it means to seek those things that are above, seeking his authority, seeking his power, this is the application for our hearts. To seek those things which are above is to make your aims, dreams, desires, and ambitions have Christ at the center. Okay, so just as I said, as you pray with one another, wherever two or more gathered, you're welcoming God's authority into that space. To now seek those things that are above is not to just imagine outer space, imagine heaven, and to seek heaven like seek the life thereafter, because that's what people think, right? Like, invest in eternity, whatever that means. So, like, I'm going to do things that last. I don't really know what that means. It's saying that you are going to make Christ at the center. His authority in your life will be at the center of your heart. Which means that you die to everything else that is contrary to what he wants for you. Which is often difficult for us. But we know the promise of Psalm chapter 34 verse 10 says this. The young lions lack and suffer hunger... But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Because people are always afraid of missing out, right? You're afraid that if you take some of those desires, ambitions, and you crucify those things that are not pleasing to the Lord, you're afraid of becoming that different person that you don't want to be. You're afraid of losing, like, everything you've dreamed, everything you've invested in. And this is what drives people mad, people that want scho- uh, you know, scholarships because of sports and, and education or people that are getting good grades, people that are investing in a direction. When they're told to crucify things that are not pleasing to the Lord, it's difficult because they're not sure who they would be without those things. But this is what God calls us to do, promising that you will not lack any good thing if you make him the center of your life. But it's true. If you look at the world... Look at the people that are pursuing all those other things, wealth, love in the world, whatever it is that, that, you know, is the center of their ambition, they're hungry. They're like young lions that lack and suffer hunger. The other thing he tells us to do is in verse 2. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things 
on the earth. So the next thing, not only to submit our heart to Christ, but to submit our mind to Christ. So let me ask you this question. Here's a good question. I love good questions. What's on your mind? Heavenly things or earthly things? Heavenly things or earthly things? And once again, I'm not speaking about, you're, you're thinking about harps, you're thinking about clouds, you're thinking about Jesus, like what he looks like. That was never to be an intention. Imagining his beard or like God floating or like angels. That's not what it means to set your mind on things above. It means, once again, that we are to be seeking and to be striving for the heavenly reality. Which means that you, once again, take your mind and you make it submit to the Lord by making him the center of your thoughts, your intentions. Anything that's not pleasing him, that doesn't put him at the center of, center of the authority of your life, is excavated from your life. This is what N.T. Wright says about um, this verse. He says, The command to aspire to the things of heaven is a command to meditate and dwell upon Christ's sort of life and on the fact that he is now enthroned as the Lord of the world. So let me break it down for you a little bit more. I believe to set your mind on heavenly things means the ultimate glorification of God. To bring God value, worth, honor, glory, etc. Heavenly things, setting your mind on heavenly things means the ultimate glorification of God and getting others to worship and glorify God. And setting your mind on earthly things means, take a guess, the ultimate glorification of you, not the earth. Just as to be heavenly minded is to put Christ at the center of your mind, to be earthly minded is to put you at the center of your mind. So, Heavenly minded means the ultimate glorification of God. Earthly things is the ultimate glorification of you, which means getting others to direct their attention towards you. So what would this look like? Well, a heavenly minded relationship will consist of trying to get your friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend closer to the Lord. But an earthly minded relationship will consist of putting your friend, girlfriend, boyfriend through a cost-benefit analysis. In other words, what you're trying to do is you're thinking... How much attention will this person bring me if I'm their friend? How much will this person help me out in life if I'm their friend? Or if, you know, if I date this person, will they make me look good? And sometimes we know, like, if you're, like, you might be attracted at first to somebody, but if your friends don't think they're attractive or think that they're weird or ugly or whatever, suddenly you don't, you don't care anymore. For many of us, that's the case. Because what we're doing is we're constantly putting them through that lens of how can they bring me glory, not how can they bring God glory, and how can I bring that person closer to God? Because why would you care what your friends, I mean, I'm not saying don't care what your leaders and your friends and like godly people think about a person that you're trying to date, but many of us will be turned off if we're like, ah, yeah, they're okay. And that's because we want people to approve of us, not just of the person. So thinking about this, what does it mean to set your mind on things above, not on the earth? For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That means that the things that you think about is how can I bring heaven to earth? How can I do what God wants me to do and not do the things that I just want to do? And so he says, you died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 3, verse 4, when Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So thinking about submitting your heart and submitting your mind 
The question we next need to approach is, what does it mean to have your entire life wrapped up in Jesus? What, what in the world does that look like? Because if we're honest, every, everybody's trying to balance their life. That's the difficulty, right? The reason why many of you, if not all of you, are behind on the Bible reading challenge is I can't balance my time. I haven't found time to manage so that I can set aside that time for the Lord. The reason why we constantly feel stressed out is because we don't know how to balance our relationships with our friends, with our family, our boyfriend-girlfriend relationships, the time with the Lord, and we kind of compartmentalize all those things. But that is not what God desires for us to do. We're not to compartmentalize our time with God kind of in the space. Because if you think about it, then that means that what we're supposed to do is constantly be praying throughout the day and constantly be reading our Bible throughout the day. Because in proportion, even if you read for an hour a day, guess what? There are 24 hours in a day. That means 23 of those hours you don't care about God. And at least, you know, if you sleep for six, seven hours, six or seven of those hours are completely useless to, to the Lord. You know, but that's obviously not the case. So it's not talking about proportion. It's talking about, once again, making him the center of your ambitions, your desires, everything. The ultimate goal of your reality is Jesus. I love what uh, David Guzik, who's a pastor, he commented on this by saying something like this. We often speak of people who are obsessed with music and will say, oh man, music is their life. Or soccer is their life. But if you look at Paul the Apostle, Many people have said about him, Christ is his life. He said to live is Christ, to die is gain. Everything for Paul was living for Jesus. And he says not just him, but he says you died and your life is hidden with Christ. Let me ask you a question. Is your life hidden in Christ or are you hiding Christ inside of you? Many of us, if we're honest, we are first and foremost musician, uh, actor, first and foremost student, first and foremost whatever, and secondary, we're a Christian. We haven't made the goal, Jesus. Why do I play soccer? It's because through soccer I can bring glory to the Lord. And not just being an evangelist on the soccer field, but I'm doing that for the Lord. And if you call me out of it, cool, I don't care. It's like I, I don't own my life. Whatever. Like, I'm a pastor today, but if God called me out and didn't want me to be a pastor, I'm, like, working at a PR firm. Cool. If that's how he wants to use me, he gets to make the choice. He's the creator of the universe. But here's the thing. He's a good father. And he's a good creator. He's not mean. He's not going to choose a calling on your life that you're going to hate. But anytime that you choose a reality that's not given to you by God, you're always escaping who you really are. And that is the paradox, that we're always trying to discover who we are, trying to figure ourselves out, figure out what you want to do. And this is how we evaluate even our feelings. I think I like them. I remember when I was like, I remember it was like, I don't know, fifth grade. I was a little late to the game. And I first liked a girl. Many of you are like five. I was in fifth grade. It was weird. But I remember having a conversation with one of my best friends during a sleepover. Because, like, I was friends with this girl. And we'd always been friends. I sat, you know, the desk across from her. And uh, 
just one day, like, I tried talking to her, and I couldn't talk. My tongue was tied. My heart was beating really fast. And I was just like, oh, man, like, something's wrong with me. And I was trying to think, like, I don't know why. I just really want to hang out with this person, you know. And so, like, I'm trying to think of, like, how I can ask her to hang out. Like, it's not weird. Like, we're friends. But then I couldn't get it out. And I just, like, chickened out. I turned away. Like, my face turned red. And I walked away. And I remember talking to my, one of my best friends at the time. We are having a sleepover. And I'm telling him all this strange activity that's happening within my body. <laughs> and he's just like, dude, do you like her? I'm like, I don't know. I guess so. And I needed somebody else to interpret my emotions and my feelings for me. Well, guess what? Who better to interpret who you really are than the one who made you? Because people might be wrong about your ambitions, how you feel. But the person who can't be wrong is the one who created you. Psalm chapter 33 verse 15 says this. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. God makes you as an individual. And many of us, unfortunately, this is what happens. We'll fear, everyone look up here. Many of us will fear becoming like a clone of everybody else, right? You're afraid of becoming just like everybody else and looking, talking the same, all just being like a Bible nerd or something. But the reality is because God fashions people individually, you can become the most creative you've ever been. You realize your full potential because you've invested in the Lord and not in selfish desires. You haven't tried to figure yourself out. If God were to give you a gift that you have, whether it's music, whether it's artistic ability, whether it's just you're really good with numbers, and he gives you a gift, you got to imagine that the person who gave you the gift, who made you the gift, will always be able to tell you how to use the gift better than you figuring it out for yourself. So the perfect use of a perfect, or a perfect use of a good thing will always be better than the imperfect use of a good thing. And because if God's giving you the instructions, you're going to be okay. So this is what he means by saying that you're hidden in Christ, which means that you have the security not only from the world, but you have the security of knowing who you are in Jesus. It's hidden in Christ. So here's the big question. For you thus far, looking at your life, who have you been representing? Who have you been living as? Have you been authentically you or you've been authentically somebody else? I wonder like, you know that passage at the end of your life when you come before the Lord and if you don't know him, Jesus said, I never knew you. I wonder if part and parcel of the reason why Jesus says that is because you became somebody that you were not intended to be. But people that embrace that new reality, that new identity, are able to explore the person that they were designed to be. So in conclusion, it talks about this future glorification in verse 4. That Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So here's the future tense of what it means to have your identity wrapped up in Christ. Which means that your dreams, your ambitions, everything that you do is never wasted, number one, because you're doing it for eternity. It's done for the Lord. And he's going to make sure that no good thing will withhold from those that walk uprightly. But there are also things that you're investing in now that will be revealed later. So at the return of Christ, this secret life that we've deposited will come to light. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to, to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. This is also where the Bible talks about do your good deeds before your father who sees you in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. So living the kind of life that's not just done before men. You do good deeds in front of other people. So people give you a pat on the back. You Instagram about it. You Snapchat it and like look what I'm doing. I'm on a mission trip. I'm feeding the homeless. I'm doing whatever. But are you doing more good works? You're doing more good things for the name of the Lord. That's as a deposit so that when everything's brought to the light, you have more things to be revealed than you did uh, already known. There's a hidden life, a hidden good character that you've built up for yourself that when Christ is fully glorified, he returns to the earth. And as you receive that glorified body, there are certain things that are known about you that people didn't know before. Like, I didn't know he, I didn't know he did that. That's amazing. And it all brings God all the more glory because you've saved it up until that last day. It's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. So thinking about everything that we talked about this evening, I think it's easy for us to realize that many of us have not been walking in that newness of life. We've kind of been somebody else. And maybe it's because we're afraid of being unpopular, uncool, whatever. But time is short. And if I think about it, my time in high school was not always spent the way that I wish it was. I was not always the person I wanted to be. And that's because I was always chasing after things that were ultimately fruitless, ultimately worthless. Because there were things that I wanted to do. But I didn't ask God what he wanted me to do. So if you're not a Christian tonight, a lot of this language might be really confusing. But it's pretty simple to explain when you think about the fact that this is our instruction manual on how to live our lives. It tells us this story, this elaborate story of what God's been doing from the beginning of creation and what he'll do in the future and how we can be a part of that. And so that's how we understand everything in our life. It gives us a manual. And I want to ask you is, what is your manual for figuring out what you're supposed to be, who you're, um, who you're supposed to become? And for many people, they're not sure. They have no idea. And so they feel that despair of not having that direction. But for us, we have the confidence that God will never lead us astray. He'll never lead us into despair. So for you, consider what you've been doing. Who you are at school, who you are at youth group, who you are at home. Are you a consistent person? Have you been living that new life? And we're going to see some characteristics of that next week. But these are things that we can consider this evening. Let's pray.